This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatters? Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you haven't heard the announcement yet, we were super excited to announce that we just dropped our fifth podcast, Margin Call, which is going to cover the trading side of the business. We've got two guys who have lived and breathed this for decades. This has been, uh, you know, what they've, this is almost like an obsession to them. Uh, super entertaining commentary from Alex Chandy and Big George Periscopopoulos. Uh, AKA the same last name as George Mitchell, just a little fun fact that he likes to tell people. Uh, so go check that out. Margin call on anywhere that you can find podcast. Uh, and there's also the other four shows. So if you haven't checked those out, go check those out as well. Um, what do you guys think of when you think of the name NVIDIA? So if you're into gaming, if you're into computers, you probably know NVIDIA as the leading graphics card manufacturer in the world. And so they power a lot of the gaming systems, a lot of high powered computer systems and things like that. Well, did you know that NVIDIA is also an energy? Because I didn't. And so I ran into this guy, Mark Spieler, who heads up NVIDIA's energy tech division. And I was like, this is fascinating. I was like, we got to have you on the show. And so he came on the show and schooled us up on all the cool things that they're using their technology for and how they're enabling a lot of companies to do a lot more with the GPU processing power. So really, really cool stuff. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Uh, really quickly, before we get into the episode, we're going to do our TPH Energy Insight of the Week. So today we're going to talk about one of the most obscure and often overlooked parts of the energy tech ecosystem that many processes depend on, membranes. Sounds pretty boring, right? It's super important to a lot of existing energy processes, but also some of the future energy processes. Colin, let's dive into those. Yeah, so I don't know if you saw earlier this week, we uh, talked about it quite a bit in the roundup, both in the newsletter and on the show. Um you know, carbon capture has been a big talking point and you saw Oxy is building this huge carbon capture. It's supposed to be the biggest carbon capture project in the world out in the Permian Basin. And I didn't know this until recently, but, you know, carbon capture systems really utilize membrane technology to be able to separate the CO2. And so when you look at processes like, you know, carbon capture and then batteries are relying on membranes, hydrogen fuel cells, and then um, a couple episodes back, you know, Jake, uh, we both talked about the, um, the role that water technology plays yep. into the energy transition. All of these technologies are dependent on membranes. So it's pretty clear that they're going to be important um, for not only existing processes and energy, but future technology as well. And one thing that I thought was really interesting about this uh, TPH newsletter was that they said that there's a short list of investors, less than 200 uh, venture capital uh, firms across the entire world and all stages um, all geographies, all verticals, there's only 200 that are focused on advanced materials and material sciences. And so you have this extreme, uh, you know, this vacuum, this lack of capital in the space. And it actually kind of reminds me of where uh, oil and gas digital technology was back in 2016. You remember that, Jake? Like the oh, yeah. number one complaint that you'd always hear from these startups was there's no capital um, to be invested in and develop these. So right now, membranes are heavily uh, dependent on government funding and things of that nature. But it'd be interesting to see how capital moves into that space, you know, especially as we've talked about previously, with all these ESG funds coming in. You know, I 
imagine some of that money gets funneled into developing new technologies for the tech transition. Yeah, there definitely needs to be a lot of greater financial and social support for these kind of technologies or else we're not going to be able to finance energy transition or uh, even kind of support the existing energy processes and making them more efficient. Maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do what we did for uh, oil and gas tech and we'll, you know, start up a membranes podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a niche of a niche of a niche. <laughs> All right, guys, if you want to learn more information like this, go check out the TBH Energy Tech newsletter. And also, if you haven't seen, we've been posting about it. We sent a, a email blast as well about the TPH Disrupt D4 conference is going to be virtual this year across three cities uh, and three different dates, uh, Houston, Denver, and Boston. Uh, so if you want to go check that out, we'll have a link in the show notes. So you can go uh, register for that. It's going to be a lot of yeah. fun. We'll be there. And make sure to get make sure to get signed up quick because they're going to be sending out these VR headsets as swag. So oh, it's yeah, a virtual, yeah, it's a virtual conference and they're going to be doing like 360 tours of the facilities and the technologies of the tech companies. And so if you have one of these VR headsets, you'll be able to view it in uh, 360. All right, guys, let's get right into the episode. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Will and Gas Startups Podcast. Mark, I'm excited to have you here, man. We we met very serendipitously probably 10 months ago right? at uh, Whitehall. Is, it, is Whitehall like Fight Club? You don't talk about it? That's right. Okay, so never mind. We didn't meet anyone. <laughs> um, and so a great group of guys met, met him there. Uh, and he was just like, yeah, with NVIDIA. And you know, I'm, I'm running like this energy practice with NVIDIA. And I was like, what is NVIDIA doing in energy? Because, you know, obviously... We're nerds. I built a lot of computers in my life, played a lot of games and stuff. And so like everybody knows is NVIDIA is like yeah, when the, Jake the told GPU me we were doing this podcast. I was like, what's NVIDIA doing in yeah. oil and gas? You know, I know it is, you know, video card gaming right. company. So really intriguing. It's crazy. And then you think and like also just spoiler alert, if you look at y'all's market cap, like y'all are one of the biggest companies in the world. You actually now hold the record like Salesforce was the biggest company that we've had on. Now NVIDIA, I think you guys are like 100 billion more than them or something. It's like crazy how big NVIDIA is. I don't know they're that big. Yeah. We're about 340 billion market cap yesterday. Crazy. Yeah. Didn't you guys just have a huge surge in your stock price? <clears throat> well, I joined a year ago and our stock was a year and a half ago and our stock was about $140 a share. And today I think it's around 540, 545. Ooh. That's wild. So, but hasn't, I mean, just like with, all the Bitcoin mining and everything going on, you know, GPUs and yeah. anything computer related. I see a lot of people complaining online that they just can't find components for computers because all the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency miners are <laughs> taking them up. So I'm sure that's impacted well, you guys some. Maybe a year and a half ago, but video gaming has always been at the forefront of what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, Jensen, our CEO, started the company 28 years ago as a as a way of improving the gaming experience, right? And and since that time, we've grown into enterprise company mm -hmm. and accelerated computing company across high performance computing and now AI. And uh, just this last quarter, we actually surpassed our gaming revenues with our enterprise revenues. Wow. So most people still think of us as a gaming company. <laughs> so I always but have you guys aren't playing now. You're <laughs> right? <not> playing. <laughs> things are getting serious. It's a terrible pun, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Even with executives in the energy patch, when whenever I talk to them about Nvidia, I say you probably know us if you have a 14 year old son or a son that plays <laughs> video games. I said, but we're so much more than that. But it's always. It's always what people I, talk I really, about. I really first. like it from a branding perspective, though, because like right off the bat, I think of you guys as a cool company. You know, I'm like, man, this this video game, you know, video card company, and now they're doing 
computer applications. Do you game at all? I don't. I don't. Even though I'm begged every day by my boys. (laughs) I've got three sons and a daughter and the boys every day are gaming like crazy. And, uh, yeah, you know, they want me to participate. You need to hop in there with them. Do you guys have gaming rooms at the office? Um, not that I know of. <laughs> that would be that I like, know of. Jake's asking the hard hitting questions right? here. <laughs> Let's get straight to the point. I'm pursuing a career in, in NVIDIA here too. Uh, so, so Mark, what is your, what's your actual role at uh, NVIDIA? So I run the global energy vertical for okay. NVIDIA. So across our enterprise organization, we have a variety of different industry verticals. Energy happens to be one of them. And we've been primarily focused on oil and gas and primarily upstream. Uh, we're very prevalent in interpretation software, so like Petrel and Decision Space and all of that run really well on our GPUs and the workstations. But then we expanded into high-performance computing and really transformed the way that people do seismic processing, right? Yeah. Mm. But but now it, it's all about AI, and that AI is helping with the decarbonization and decentralization of power and helping companies to to be more efficient. And so we've expanded into the surface side of the business as well as now over into power generation and distribution for all the renewables that are coming online. So it's it's definitely much bigger than oil and gas today. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your background real quick because before we got on the microphone, you know, we started talking a little bit. You told me that you're former Halliburton and, you know, you're involved heavily in the M&A side with Halliburton and Baker Hughes um, transaction or potential transaction, however you want to word that. So let's talk about your background and your career. You know, obviously you were at Halliburton. Were you anywhere before that? What'd you do at Halliburton? Give us the whole spiel. Sure. So I'm a Minnesota boy by, by, yeah, I was going to say, birth. I, I, I was going to ask you if you're from Canada because right? I heard a little bit of an accent there. <laughs> I, I get that a lot. So I grew up in Minnesota, never thought I'd leave uh, Minnesota. I thought it was a great place and went to school there and did my undergrad and master's at uh, Winona State University in Southeast Minnesota, uh, just across the bridge from Wisconsin. So it was perfect timing. You know, the bars close at one in Minnesota go across the bridge, get another hour in Wisconsin. It was a beautiful thing. It's time efficiency. Huh? Yes, yes. And so uh, after I graduated and uh, decided to go into the uh, tech industry and got a job with Silicon Graphics, SGI, and they were a leader in, in graphics. They used to ha- own the Google campus back oh, in wow. the day. So once they started to decline uh, in, the, in the early 2000s, they sold the campus. And now Google's there, but um, spent six years with SGI, uh, two years in Minnesota. Then they moved me down to Texas to cover oil and gas, got heavily involved with uh, uh, some of the service companies and the software companies, so Landmark, Schlumberger, GeoQuest, Paradigm, and those. Okay, so let's let's stop there real quick because I find sure. that really interesting. So you had this Silicon Valley company, yeah. early 2000s. And they were already targeting oil and gas because what I find that really interesting because you see all these headlines now, you know, whether it's uh, Microsoft or Salesforce or AWS, whoever it is, you know, big tech coming after oil and gas and energy. And but I haven't really heard a lot about kind of the evolution of that happening. And so here you're saying that SGI back in the day was already targeting oil and gas. That's what they brought you in. You know, did they was that kind of were there a lot of companies in Silicon Valley looking at the energy vertical or were they kind of the, the, an outlier at that time? No, uh, Sun, IBM, they were all prevalent in the energy space, right? If you look at seismic processing, right, which is how oil and gas reserves are mm-hmm. identified, mm-hmm. the amount of compute that's necessary to take all of the uh, 
noise reflections off the bottom of the earth, or I guess not even the bottom, within the earth, mm-hmm. and actually turn them into an image is extremely compute intensive. And once again, once you compute all that, you have to visualize, visualize it. So um, Landmark started off as actually a, a company that built their own hardware and software, and eventually realized that there was hardware available on the open market that they could then just write the software and run it on industry standard hardware. So that's where Sun and SGI really became prevalent is on the desktop. And then eventually they started doing all the seismic processing on the big mainframes from SGI and big supercomputers from SGI and Sun. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about. I was actually thinking about this the other day because, you know, we like to kind of bash on oil and gas as not being digitally innovative and being behind and software and things of that nature. And there's really this disconnect because you look at the seismic processing and I mean, that's very advanced stuff. And just like you said, you know, it requires a lot of computing power and they were doing these things in the early two thousands, but then there was like a disconnect, you know, from using advanced technology to do that. And then it's like all of a sudden they got stagnant and com- you know, complacent and started using less technology on the digital side and falling behind Silicon Valley. You know, it's always kind of said that, you know, we're 10 years behind. So it's kind of interesting to look at that dynamic too, of how we were very advanced and then kind of stopped advancing on the digital side. But yeah, great. Thanks for diving into that because I think that's actually the first time that we've gone that far back into, you know, Silicon Valley working on oil and gas. So didn't mean to interrupt your story, well, but okay. appreciate the insight. So continue. So no. what happened after after SGI? So then I was at SGI and I was working quite a bit with the big software companies here in, in Houston and uh, was spending a lot of time with Landmark Graphics. And so uh, the vice president over there at the time responsible for marketing and innovation asked me to come over and, and run their strategic alliances with all of the software and hardware companies that they needed to partner with to build out their technology portfolio and leverage third-party stuff to accelerate faster. So I did that, and I spent five years with Landmark, um, responsible. Did, did John Gibson found Landmark? I'm pretty sure John Gibson founded John Landmark. did not found Landmark, but he was active, involved, okay. and he was eventually president of Landmark oh, okay. and then okay. president. There have you, you met with John here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah we're John's right. fantastic. Yeah, well, we haven't had John on the podcast. We need to have John on the podcast. He's, a, the he's a character for he is sure. A character. <laughs> he's a great guy. He always makes fun of... Uh, makes fun of our podcaster haircut. So last time I talked to him, yeah, so yeah, yeah. He, yeah, yeah. He, he likes to talk shit. That he likes to <laughs> so. <laughs> Sounds like John. He's a bright, bright yeah, individual he is. though. Yep. Yeah, he very is. smart guy. So um, John was already gone by the time I got there. And okay. uh, he was off uh, doing something else. And then eventually I think at Paradigm. But um, so I spent five years at Landmark, basically running strategic alliances. And then eventually some of our offshore development efforts and then moved into corporate finance of all things. I did credit collections for three years, um, <laughs> which which was actually one of my favorite roles ever. Um, just because I got to travel the world, I got to meet with operational people, yeah. understand the issues uh, that oil companies, especially national oil companies, were facing, mm-hmm. um, and work with uh, CEOs and and CFOs of small companies who needed credit in order to accelerate their business, as well as uh, our operational people around the world. So, so how did you make that transition, you know, kind of going from this tech and computing background over to corporate finance? Was that something that you wanted to do or, you know, you just kind of got pushed into and you ended up enjoying it? You know, how, how did that happen? So uh, one of the things about most credit individuals is they're, they're very risk adverse, right? And they want to make sure that they don't lose money on behalf of their company, which is a great trait. <laughs> but, you know, just, just like anything else, right, it's, it's owning a portfolio, 
And so uh, they wanted somebody that had some sales background who could work with the sales and operational folks around the world, as well as work with the credit folks to help them understand that taking more risk and, and giving some credit to people who typically would pay, right? But at the same point, we're a little bit higher risk. It was important to basically build out a, a portfolio of customers, right? Some mm -hmm. low risk, like those large super majors and NOCs, some a little bit higher risk startups and other companies that needed a frack job or needed drilling services or cementing or something else. And basically, how do we capture more business by potentially doing jobs that we might not have done and and expedite that process so that when we get the opportunity to go catch a job, we go do it. Yeah. And so, um, so you're kind of this liaison between both parties and, you know, helping the creditors kind of, you know, build a balanced portfolio and help them understand it's like, Hey, look, you can have some of these higher risks, you know, and they, they still, they're, they're most likely going to pay, right. just balance it out with some more, you know, yeah. credit worthy accounts. That's exactly right. You know, and, and most of the time they pay, you know, it's when you get into the downturn that you got to start worrying, <laughs> yeah, right? Absolutely. But, um, but once again, even during my time, you know, DSOs went down and, and, you know, fortunately I was there from 2011 through 2014 in that role. So it was a pretty good time for oil and gas. Yeah. Uh, when I left and I trans transitioned from the credit collections role or customer finance, as they call it at Halliburton into the M and a role, I was asked because we had acquired a company multi-chem and, um, you know, when you acquire small companies into a large company like Halliburton, sometimes there's some growing pains, integration issues. And so I was asked to go over um, and basically uh, help them get integrated into the Halliburton culture, Halliburton systems and processes. And, and then I ended up getting, uh, getting to stay there for about five years because uh, right after I started in that role back in 2014, uh, we announced the acquisition of Baker at mm -hmm. the end of 2014 and went straight into integration planning and divestiture planning to do the Baker Hughes deal. Yeah, I'm sure that was a ton of work. And then that, that, that fell apart, didn't it? It did. It fell it did. apart and then GE bought them. Correct. And then GE Baker split recently. Correct. Now Baker's on their own again. Correct. Poor Baker. <laughs> Nobody wants him. <laughs> Baker can't catch a break. <laughs> Great company. Great yeah. company. Tough market. Yeah. Right. So Absolutely. Yeah, I know. So how did you get over to NVIDIA? How long have you been at NVIDIA? Um, and, and tell us about what led from going to Halliburton on the service side, doing corporate finance, M&A, and then what led you over getting back into the tech side? So um, I've always been passionate about technology and, and saw it as the future of the industry. And uh, a lot of the folks from SGI uh, have transitioned over to NVIDIA. You know, as I walk around the halls of our headquarters, there's big groups from SGI, from Sun, from Cisco. And so you'll see that as NVIDIA became larger and larger, the amount of people that came over from a few big companies are prevalent. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the folks that I worked with at SGI are now over at NVIDIA and uh, we've stayed in contact throughout the years. And so uh, when the head of energy for NVIDIA uh, uh, was retiring, we worked together at actually at SGI. We worked together for a while at Halliburton. Now he'd been at NVIDIA for, I think, almost 12 years. And so when he told me he was going to retire, we talked about uh, me potentially being his successor. And those conversations, you know, carried on for, for yeah. months yeah. until finally uh, they just, he decided he was ready to retire and uh, ended up interviewing for the role. And it seemed like a good fit given my background. And so... Yeah. Uh, 
went over there in July of last year. Um, and uh, it's been nonstop ever since. <laughs> yeah. So how, you know, let's talk about, I'm sure there's a lot to unpack here. I have a lot of questions, but you've been there for almost a year and a half now. And, you know, the better part of, you know, 30 or 40% of that time spent has been in this, this odd market of 2020, you know, double black swan. Um, how are companies really looking at technology and solutions that NVIDIA provides? You know, are you seeing a lot of movement in, in the EMP space? You know, I know, I think you said that you guys are predominantly focused on the up, upstream sector of oil and gas. I mean, are these oil companies really looking for new technological solutions that can help streamline and, and save costs? Absolutely. It's all about saving costs at this point, right? Yeah. Um, you know, getting more oil out of the ground at $50 a barrel is, is, is important, right? To keep the top line, but ultimately your, the profitability is going to be from how we help them save, save cost. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, really over the last year and a half, I've focused on really sustaining the, the current business in upstream, right? How do we continue to support our customers with our next generation of products and our platforms for seismic processing and interpretation? But then how do we transition the industry into leveraging uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning to do what um, couldn't be done before, right? The technology's evolved in such a way that helping the industry to take all the knowledge that they've accumulated throughout the years and all the decisions that they've made and train AI models to make those decisions proactively um, can, can introduce great cost savings you know, people are still afraid of it, right? Kind of like autonomous cars, right? You know, <laughs> people think it's a great idea, but then they're nervous by it. But ultimately, the, they're making decisions based on previous decisions. And, yeah. and ultimately, there's still a human in the loop, right? So it's, you know, once again, if you could run 100 scenarios in the time that you would normally do three, and now you can take those 100 scenarios and reduce them down to three and look at only those three, once again, you can save considerably amount, considerable amount of time because in the past you only had time to look at three. Yeah. Now you can look at a lot more data a lot faster and narrow it down based on previous decisions and historical data Yeah. and make better decisions. Absolutely. Are you guys you know, going directly to the ENPs and actually selling these? Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Sure. You know, like what's your service like? Because I know there's startups out there, you know, like uh, Novi Labs or Subsurface IO that, you know, that that's their pitch right there is that, you know, enabling engineers to do more mm -hmm. with artificial intelligence, you know, just, Hey, we can give you a hundred models instead of three, and then you can make better decisions. When you guys go to EMPs, are you actually selling these services of artificial intelligence and data insight, or are you guys just selling the computing power for it? To be honest, we don't sell anything directly to customers. Everything is sold through partners, right? So that that's probably the biggest misconception of NVIDIA as a company. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we make a piece of silicon, right, called a called a GPU. Yeah. But even more than more importantly is we have this tremendous software stack, right, and platform stack that basically is available online. People can download it. People can leverage it, whether they be startups, whether they be enterprise software companies or whether they be end user companies. And so basically our job at NVIDIA is really technology enablement. So we go and talk about what we have and then it's all always delivered through partners. So it could be a startup that's basically doing AI that delivers a solution that requires a GPU to get the performance that they need. Mm -hmm. It's it's 
potentially a large ISV. It's a cloud. All of the major clouds have NVIDIA GPUs. They're our largest customers. So from, from an NVIDIA perspective, we're really about how do we help people do their job or do science better and faster? Mm-hmm. And eventually, they're going to need the, the silicon to, to get there. Yeah. And so when, when we go talk with a customer, we try to understand what problem they're trying to solve. So find a problem, solve a problem, build a business, right? And that build a business is typically through a partner ecosystem. So we'll go in, we'll talk to them about what they're trying to solve, which algorithms they're trying to develop. And then we determine, can, can these algorithms be parallelized, right? That's the value of a GPU, as opposed to having four cores, 20 cores, 60 cores on a CPU, a GPU now, our highest end GPUs have almost 10,000 cores, right? Jeez. So once again, they're not as fast as a single core on a CPU, but once again, if, if, if you have 10,000 pickup trucks or one moving truck, chances are you can move more stuff with 10,000 pickup trucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so ultimately what we find is, is that if we can parallelize the problem, and AI is a perfect example of highly parallelized problems, um, we can crunch data faster than anybody. So once again, we work with startups all the time. We've got an inception program with over 7,000 startups. And basically, we our job is to enable them to be successful. We give them access to our technology, access to um, dev developers and technicians that can basically help them optimize their code. And basically, our job is to make them successful. If they're successful... Somebody's going to deploy on the cloud and use a GPU. They're going to deploy yeah. deploy on prem from Dell or HP or Lenovo, and they're going to use a GPU. So, so, so on that topic, so if there's startups that are are building something that's very very compute heavy, they can just reach out to you. Yeah. You'll plug them into the ecosystem. You guys have resources for them yep. to enable them to just build it even yeah, faster. Let's, let's talk Absolutely. about yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. This incentive program that you guys have for the startups, you know. If we have a startup that's listening and they're interested in this, you know, what's the process to doing that? I mean, are, is it as easy as signing up for an account and starting to build on the NVIDIA platform? Mm-hmm. Do they have to go through an application process? How there is an application process, but everybody's accepted. Um, it's called our inception program, and there's a variety of different uh, training that's available to them or developer tools. Uh, they can have access to engineers. Uh, the the great part about my team, Energy Team, is we've got 25 plus people on the team right now. And these folks come from industry, right? So yeah. they come from all the major operator service companies or large software companies. And so they've seen those problems and they're they're very technical and, and can help. And, and so we spend a lot of time helping those folks to be successful and then we promote them, right? Through webinars or uh, our GTC conference or other conferences as well. So you said you guys have 25 people, 25 engineers on the energy side. Are y'all all based in Houston or are you um, dispersed? Dispersed. Okay. Dispersed. So we, we have a handful of folks in Houston. We've got th- folks throughout Latin America. We've got folks over in Europe and in the Middle East. Okay. And uh, as we continue to s- expand into different segments of the energy industry, we'll go and hire people that specifically know that segment of the industry and then bring them on board to, once again, help our partner ecosystem or customers to do things that they couldn't do by themselves. Yeah. So if I understand it correctly, you guys are a platform and a tool for the ecosystem. And so you can have startups coming and building on it. You could have the end users. You know, if you have someone internal at Pioneer Natural Resources that wants to build out an application, you know, 
you guys are just more of a tool and a platform for the entire ecosystem. And then your long-term play is to provide the, uh, the piece of Silicon, as you would say, in the long-term and provide that computing power. That's right. That's okay. right. And so once again, we, we don't even have a, um, we, we haven't had a professional services organization. We've just hired somebody to help with that. But typically, you know, customers, I go in and I talk to them and they're like, oh, we're working with Microsoft or we're working with Google or we're working with AWS. Right. And I said, well, that's great. You know, they, they have our, they have our GPUs. Yeah. <laughs> I said, but at the end so of you the power day, all of the biggest cloud computing players in the world. They all have our GPUs, right? Yeah. We power them. They have CPUs as well, right? Depending mm -hmm. on the application, enterprise stuff typically, you know, is CPU, you know, enabled, but technical computing or scientific computing or AI, um, GPUs far exceeds the potential. Is there a way to break down the difference between a GPU and a CPU sure. for someone like me that doesn't understand the clear difference? <laughs> so, sure. So the easiest way is if you go back to when we found, when Jensen founded the company back in, uh, 1992, the goal was to improve the gaming experience, right? And so you think about how many pixels are on a screen, right? And today there's a lot more than there was back in 92. Mm -hmm. yeah. But every time you change the color of a pixel via video game, it's not predetermined, right? You know, it's not like playing a video where you're playing an image that's already pre-made. Pre Basically, if you choose to go right, the screen could turn green. If you choose to go left, it could turn black. If you choose to go here, it could do something else. And so you needed to in real time, those are all mathematical equations, right? To, to generate that, that color and the response time to get that color back and actually put it up on the screen. So having four or six, you know, back then it was probably one or two cores. It basically couldn't do the math quick enough for every single pixel. So basically when they came out with GPUs, they had hundreds of cores at that point. And therefore they could do these very simple math equations, but that needed to be done, you know, let's say thousands of times because there's thousands of pixels on a screen in real time to get faster response time. So you didn't see lagging and you didn't see images. Well, fast forward. So fast forward to 2006, um, there were some people at Stanford and other universities that were basically looking at these cores on a GPU and said, I think we could do more than graphics with this, right? But they're kind of difficult to program, right? Because it's not a standard C++ or Fortran or whatever. So they basically um, started working on what's called CUDA today, which is our programming language for GPUs. And uh, since that time, CUDA has gotten much easier to program. We've got over 2 million, I think 1.82 million developers wow. in the, in the world right now that are CUDA developers. And, um, basically you can now program those individual cores to do individual math problems. And so once again, it's highly parallelized. So as opposed to submitting a job to a CPU that has today might be 20 cores or even 60 cores. Now you're sending it to something between eight and 10,000 cores. And so once again, for like image recognition, right, for, uh, you know, self-driving vehicles where you have mm -hmm. to look all around the car and in real time process all the video in real time, it, it's a fantastic solution. Yeah. Yeah. I took a Lyft in Las Vegas last year that was self-driving car. And oh, they really? had, yeah, they had a computer in the back and they had a screen up in the front and you can see just all the data that that 
car is processing everything around it. I mean, just the processing power and computing power that you have to have just for that one individual car is just insane. Yeah. And you think about it, like think about how much technology is advanced. Like you wouldn't be able to crunch that much data, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's just crazy. The acceleration of advancement and technology. So I think, I think we take, I think we take it for granted. Yeah, I think we do too. <laughs> like going back to what we said like a couple episodes ago, like I'm just, I'm still amazed at iPhones and just like what we can do on our phones. Yeah. Like imagine how crazy it is and what these AIs and stuff can actually compute. Yeah, like you, you see these apps, like the face swap apps that are using deep fake. Yeah. I'm like the fact that I can do that in an app on my phone in 30 seconds, right? like I don't think the typical consumer realizes how cool that is <laughs> that no. you can do that. It, it, it's very amazing. Yeah. It's very amazing. So there's a lot of applications, obviously, in oil and gas, particularly in upstream, you know, things that are just very, very data compute heavy. Uh, things that kind of come to mind for me is that tools like Tibco Spotfire have kind of become... Mm-hmm. Uh, the tool of choice for a lot of EMPs. It seems like everybody, at least one department's using them. I think the mistake that a lot of them make is that they build it in a way to where you're doing a lot of computations in Spotfire, which is not necessarily built to use. And so therefore the data visualization is, like you said, extremely laggy uh, and takes forever to kind of generate these models. So there's a lot of use cases there and we could probably talk about that forever. I'm interested though to see where are you guys looking? Obviously like you know, this energy transition thing seems to be kind of like top of mind. And I'm curious where an organization like NVIDIA, like you guys probably have a lot of data and research and where are you seeing kind of movement in other forms of energy and where are you guys going to be focusing your attention? So, so that's a great question, right? You know, clearly oil and gas are, is going to be around for, it's not going for anywhere. our lifetime. It's not going anywhere, guys. Right? <laughs> Just going to preface it by saying <laughs> so, that. So, you know, the thing is, is there, it's twofold. It's, it's how do we help oil and gas become as clean as possible? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we can do that through all different kinds of things uh, on the surface side of things, you know, even now with cameras for emission detection and, you know, those types of things. But then as the world evolves and more distributed energy resources come online, right, about, you know, the statistic I always hear is the world's energy needs are going to double by 2050. So in the next 30 years and, and chances are at best case scenario, oil and gas will remain flat, right? So that still means we have to come up with the equivalent of all the natural gas and coal type Mm -hmm. electricity over the next 30 years. Yeah, I mean, right now hydrocarbons account for 63% of electricity generation. I mean, that's a pretty heavily weighted distribution. Yeah. And, and eventually, if the world oil is going to, if the world's electricity needs are going to double or power needs are going to double in the next 30 years, we can't double fossil fuel energy production, right? I just, I just don't see that happening. Yeah. So there's going to be the introduction of wind and the introduction of more solar and nuclear options with molten salt reactors and uh, cleaner nuclear type solutions and hydro and geothermal and all of that. So, you know, the thing about all of those are generating the power for those, um, you can do a lot in the form of performance asset management, predictive maintenance, stability, simulation to see, you know, how do you get the most out of those assets? Mm -hmm. But the bigger question is, is once you go from having, let's say in the U.S., 8,000 power generation spots to over a million Right. When you add in everybody's solar panels on the roof, you add in all wind, you add in batteries, you add in all of these things. All of a sudden, the electric grids, you know, they're not meant 
they weren't built for that kind of smarts, right? And, yeah. and it's, I, I compare it a lot to 5G, right? You know, eventually you, you think about when things slow down with the network because you might have a baseball game going on and everybody's filming stuff and now they're high resolution, mm-hmm. three, three cameras on your, you know, phone and you're uploading it to the, <laughs> here and there. And all of a sudden the networks become overloaded. Well, the same thing's going to happen with the energy grids, right? If you think about the smarts that need to go in to basically take all these distributed energy resources and know what's, what you buy from somebody who's generating that electricity how you route it through, but more and more, it's not going to be a one-way direction, right? If you have a house with solar panels it's coming back. and you're on vacation, you're going to be feeding the grid the week while you're gone, right? Or if you have excess capacity, you're going to be feeding the grid and you don't want to buy a bunch of electricity from somebody who's generating it from natural gas when you have to take it from somebody who has solar, mm-hmm. right? Or it doesn't make sense to. Right. So ultimately, you're going to have to try to predict where the energy is going to be coming from, how to move it, how to have the right infrastructure so you don't overpower power lines. You don't, you know, the big thing in that industry is I'm learning a lot. I've never been in the utility (laughs) space, but I've spent a lot of time with customers and and industry consortias to understand that it's all about reliability and predictability. Mm -hmm. And if you overproduce too much electricity, you waste it. Right. Because there's not enough battery storage today and all of that. Yeah. If you underproduce, then you have blackouts. Yeah. Right. So you've got to be pretty accurate. You have to have a balance. Yeah. You have to have a balance. Yeah. I've, I've seen so many statistics on what it would cost to completely uh, renew, I guess, or re- redo the entire energy grid here in the U.S. And so the, the most popular number I've seen is like $14 trillion. Well, which it's, is it's not even huge. about, it's not even about, you know, completely rebuilding the energy grid. You know, these problems that, uh, Mark brings up, you know, in my mind, distribution's everything. And I think that that's where the bulk of, um, technology is going to be developed is figuring out you have all these individual, you know, dislocations in the market, all these distributed energy points, you know, just with like your next door neighbor with the energy panels that went on vacation for two right. weeks and figuring out how to deal with all of those things. And I don't think like you could just today say, Hey, we're going to rebuild the energy grid and we're going to build it for this. I think that you have to figure out how to connect all of these individual systems. And the point that he brought up is it's always a balance. You don't want too much. You don't want a surplus and you don't want a deficit. And how do you do that? And I imagine that people are coming out with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence that helps balance that. But it's an extremely complex problem. Like everyone just thinks that, you know, if you talk to these people outside of oil and gas, like, oh, just get some solar panels and some windmills and we're off oil and gas. And it's not that it's not that easy. You know, you have to think about all of these all of these issues. And I'm sure computing and technology is going to play a massive part in that. California better figure it out pretty quickly. I mean, they just banned internal combustion engines in what, like 2035 or something. And so yeah. but they're currently experiencing rolling blackouts. Right. Yeah. You get a 100 degree day there and the grid goes out it's not reliable. And that's what matters is reliability, right? That, that, that's absolutely right. And, and what I would tell you is, is that people are looking at it, right? I, I spent some time with uh, NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratories. Uh, la- the last couple of weeks, we've been having discussions about, you know, where, where are they getting funding, right? What are companies paying them to research and, and how do we step in and help them mm-hmm. to solve some of these problems? And, you know, ultimately, I, I think that... Um, that, that people are thinking a lot about this. And, and to, your, to your point, Jake, about the, um, 
14 trillion dollars to replace the grid they're not going to do that all at once but but also predicting where you should start and what should be next right what are those high highly critical areas that are going to start to see problems you know ai can predict that right they have the data the data's there the question is is how do you process it in real time and how do you process it at all because in the past the computing infrastructure couldn't do it right similar to oil and gas right they they've they've got more data than they than they can possibly look through. And, you know, once again, with AI, you can take that data and basically stream it down into a digestible, you know, amount, yeah. right? And categorize it and actually look for trends or anomalies that you can start to take action on. Yeah, I think the, uh, the ironic, or ironic thing about this, too, is you talk about all the computing power that this is going to take and the energy consumption that it would require. You know, you're going to increase energy demand just for, you know, the amount of data that we're crunching in a real time basis so you look uh, like, like bitcoin mining farms like the biggest issue is heating right <laughs> it just right. gets too damn hot yeah 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 but it's, even yeah you look at that and i'm you know i've seen like i'm a big bitcoin fanboy and you know you don't don't need your opinion on it i know a lot of people <laughs> bash that but you even look at bitcoin Everybody troll mining, calling. i mean i've seen i can't name i can't spout off the statistics on top of my head but you know if you look out to 2030 2040 just the energy that it would take to continue mining bitcoin i mean it, it's pretty substantial and so you think about these things too is as we're computing all of this data and crunching this data there's a huge burden on the on the grid right just to do that process so so from an nvidia perspective what we're trying to identify is what are those algorithms and those problems that everybody are running Mm -hmm. Right. And how do we accelerate those and give them back to the industry? Right. So we we've recently come out with a few different tools. One one of the real cool ones is called Merlin um, and it's a recommender engine. And basically what it allows, you know, today you go on to Facebook, right? You, or you go on to Amazon and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I was just talking to somebody about this. <laughs> right? or I just saw this. Right. And it, they're using recommender engines to basically recommend things to you that you'd be interested in, yeah. right? So these companies are huge companies and they develop these recommender engines and they've got a lot of data and you guys put in data every time you touch it and stuff like that. Well, most companies or most startups or individual companies don't want to invest in their own recommender engine and spend hundreds of millions of dollars. So as NVIDIA, as a company, what we do is we'll go and build those things. And in this case, Merlin was one of them. And then we make it available to our customers. Mm -hmm. And that way they don't have to go build their own, right? They're going to use Merlin. They're going to build on top of it. They're going to train with their data in a model that's provided to them. Yeah. And so each industry within NVIDIA <clears throat> is going down the path of building out these platforms, industry-specific platforms to solve the problems of that industry. And so right now, a lot of my focus has been, what are those specific problems in my industry that NVIDIA can invest in and partner with companies and, and consortia and universities to create these models or these platforms and then provide it to the entire industry. And that way the entire industry benefits 
And whether they want to use it on-prem or in the cloud, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to us, right? We're yeah. driving the industry forward. I think the democratization of technology is a really cool thing. I mean, you look at, you know, like what AWS has done for startups and it, you, you can literally, you know, you don't have to have your own server set up. You know, you mm-hmm. can utilize what a big tech company has already made the, the investment in. People and, don't realize like how big that actually is. Like, yeah. cause you think like that's a huge barrier that startups had before of like having to actually build your own servers or, or the, just the massive server costs that were associated with it, especially when you're you know scaling a company. Like that was a huge line item yeah. as an expense. I mean, and now have, it's just like, oh, like it costs us practically nothing. I mean, we have right? friends that have stood up startup SaaS products and mm-hmm. built and sold within two years and bootstrapped. And they wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for the democratization of tech like NVIDIA is providing. And so I think that that's really cool that um, you guys take that same approach and provided this platform for others to use. Right. And and one of the things that I think I've learned about in the last, you know, couple months that I think is going to start emerging is, is, uh, um, is this thought around federated learning and explain based, that to me. I haven't heard it. So, so I hadn't either <laughs> going back a few months, but I'm more a business guy than a, than a, you know, uh, than a highly technical guy. Yeah. But basically what federated learning allows companies to do or companies uh, plural is to share models without sharing data Mm. so today in a highly competitive market or in a highly regulated market it allows people to build models to solve a problem and actually share the model in the weighting of the model without actually moving data out of their environment so imagine imagine where you have um you know, maybe oil and gas companies and you got oil and gas service companies and you have um, software companies and all of a sudden they all have a piece of the data, right? But they're trying to solve a bigger problem and they wouldn't necessarily want to share that data. They wouldn't want it to leave their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now they can actually, you know, we can start with a, a simple model and we can basically have everybody working on that simple model and they retrain it with their data and then they actually push the model to an aggregator where it looks at the weighted averages of the model and then basically consolidates them into an even better model and then pushes that model back down to the individual companies or departments where they can't share data between departments mm-hmm. or others. And then all of a sudden it gets smarter and smarter and more and more accurate. And I think this is going to be a way for companies, both in oil and gas as well as utilities, to start to solve problems that they all face that don't necessarily offer a competitive advantage, but offer a sustainability, Mm -hmm. clean energy, safety, reliability, those types of things that they all struggle with. And basically, they will start to be able to introduce AI models to solve those problems that are co-built across the industry yep. without having to share their own data. I mean, that's a hundred percent happening to where you can really foster this environment of collaboration, right? Without exposing data. I mean, that's why, um, you know, if you look back at 2018, yeah, 2018 timeframe, I mean, a lot of oil and gas companies, it, it was actually something I hadn't seen before, but they were very interested in blockchain technology mm-hmm. and you know you had um you had groups here in town that were starting to stand up that had emps that were involved and these companies wanted to work and collaborate to solve problems together and you know kind of the promise of blockchain was hey we can interface with each other without exposing proprietary data so i know that the oil and gas industry is going towards that direction and it's like hey let's put our heads together and figure out 
some of these extremely challenging problems that don't necessarily give anyone a competitive edge and we don't expose any proprietary data. Right. So everyone wins. So in a lot of those cases, you're right. There are R and D projects and, and our goal is, is how do we push those into mainstream? How do we push them from R and D projects or research projects into uh, everyday use? And, and, and really I think this is going to be a way in which companies are going to be able to do that because they're going to have the security and it doesn't matter. They don't all have to be working on the same platform. If, if this company over here is running on Azure and this company's on AWS and this company's on-prem with Dell and here's somebody on HP, once again, they can all work independently and basically share the outcomes of their work in such a way that they all benefit. Yeah. So it's, the industry is going to continue to transform along those lines. Absolutely. Yeah. And NVIDIA, the video game company is going right. to, it's going to help energy transition. It's pretty cool. So, you know, before we end this out, if people want to find you, where can they find you? You know, how do they get a hold of the energy department at NVIDIA? You know, can they find you personally on LinkedIn? Do you guys have a form on the website? How do they contact the, sure. the energy so, department? So I believe there's a, uh, uh, if they go to NVIDIA.com, I'm not sure if it's forward slash energy or they just go under industries, they'll find energy. Cool. I think there's a contact me there. My email address is mspieler at nvidia.com. Please feel free to drop me a note. Um, you know, I, I'd say, you know, if, if you're a company that wants to be um, supported in leveraging accelerated computing, we want to talk to you. We'll get you into the right programs at NVIDIA. And if you're a large company that basically needs help with the digital transformation, or even if you're using GPUs today, it's amazing to me how many companies out there are using our technology today and they're not getting 100% of the value out of that because mm -hmm. they don't know about our software platforms. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was with one of the big consulting firms not too long ago and I asked, how many, how many of you are doing data science? And of course, most of their hands went up because it was a data science launch. I guess I should have thought about that ahead of time. <laughs> but, um, but then I said, how many of you are it's using... Good audience. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> it's a fitting topic. Glad I got the right room. <laughs> but how many of you are using GPUs today? And, and all their hands went up. And I said, well, how many, how many of you are familiar with NGC, which is our uh, software platform container store? Basically, like a, call it an Apple store, um, Microsoft store. Mm-hmm. Nobody. And I'm like, you realize that we update all of these applications almost monthly. We got full teams working on all this open source software, Python, PyTorch, TensorFlow, you name it. But we've optimized it for GPUs. And then we put it out there. And so you can find these containers that have the software stack that you want to use. And they've been highly optimized for GPUs. And they'll give you 30, 40% improvement. So if you're using the cloud today or you're using on-prem GPUs already and you're not using NGC or our software stacks, you're paying an extra 30 to 40% for nothing. Because yeah. these software stacks are free. Download them and you get the <laughs> optimized version. And we, we push it back out to the community, but sometimes it takes them months to upload it and take advantage of it. We upload ours every month. Yeah. And basically uh, we've got a full support stack behind it. Once again, on us, we just want you to get 100% of what you're already paying for. Yeah, I guess uh, the biggest challenge for you guys is just making them aware that that exists, right? And that's why I'm here today. <laughs> yeah. yeah no. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's amazing. You know, people still think we just make 
video game cards. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. this is super interesting. Um, you know, pretty fascinating. Now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, man, I need to invest in Nvidia. I need to go look at this because I had no sure idea. Invest you guys, a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like sounds like I missed out on a run. But Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. This is great. It's been yeah, fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Awesome, guys. If you like the show, by the way, we have two other shows that we've just launched. So uh, Tripping Over the Barrel launched uh, probably, what, what, four or five months ago, mm-hmm. maybe? Yeah. Uh, and then we just launched Risk Profile, which is focused on highlighting Houston entrepreneurs very specifically, uh, some in energy, some not, uh, but a bunch of great stories that's hosted by our buddy, Mark Bohorch, who holds a record. He's been on the show like three or four times. Yeah. Um, so he sold his company in January, uh, January or February to Inveris, which a lot of you guys know is his drilling info. So uh, a lot of insights from him. And he's partnered up with Harris Sionning, who's absolutely hilarious. Love Harris. Uh, so go check both those uh, podcasts out. We'll catch you guys in the next episode.